Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first Talk Diplomacy podcast. My name is Ishan Basareddy, and I am the founder of Talk Diplomacy, a website where youth write about historical and current global issues and events. Today, we will be discussing the Ukraine-Russia dispute regarding Crimea and Novorossiya, including the ancient history of the issue, the Soviet era, and the modern-day seizure of Crimea, war in the Donbass, and the recent developments along the border. Today, I have with me Jacob, a writer from Talk Diplomacy. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, so before we start, uh, we just want to uh, express a disclaimer. So the views, information, and, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved. And we acknowledge that this situation is very controversial and there may be some personal biasness, but we do hope that you respect this, discla this disclaimer. Yes. So as many of you may know, the issue with Crimea and the other issues between Ukraine and Russia actually go back to the Soviet era when they were both under the same country, the USSR. However, this issue actually goes back even further to the ancient history of the Slavic people and also to the kingdom of Novgorod and the Kievan Rus. Uh, so... To start with, um, we can talk about uh, that both Russians and Ukrainians, I mean, they look back to the mighty medieval empire Kievan Rus, which accepted Christianity in 988 as the cradle of their respective modern nations. But I think the true beginning of the Muscovite state is connected to the fall of Kievan Rus after the Mongol invasion beginning in 1237, which dealt a final blow to the loose federation of principalities. So right. the princes of Muscovy rose to prominence as the Mongols' most reliable local agents and soon to be challengers, which we, we can see with uh, the 14th century, where the western half of the former Kievan Rus' state came under the domination of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and later Poland. Yeah, so, because uh, Poland and Lithuania had united together under a common crown. You're right, you're right. Um, so we can analyze that the developing differences between the Russians and Ukrainians were sealed by the splitting of former lands of the Kievan Rus. So their right. separate identity group identity persisted. And this defined, this is defined in pre-modern and early modern religious and social terms, I do believe. Right. And uh, actually, even with the, even ignoring political separation itself, the, the this, this common group, the Rus people at this point really stretched all the way from uh, Novgorod way in the north, all the way down to now Kiev. And right. that's, which is now in Ukraine is actually the capital, which is a very long distance, mind you. And in fact, this, when a group of people separated along such a large distance uh, by many rivers and lots of terrain and the now political right. boundaries, that's kind of a key moment where you can start having first like dialectical differences then local differences. And then over time it gets more pronounced mm -hmm. until it splits into a different identity. So to summarize that essentially the Russians and the Ukrainians came from a common group of people who were part of the same empire, the Rus empire or Kievan Rus eventually. And then uh, over time they kind of divided into two different yes. groups. So they all harken back all the way to uh, that period of time, in fact. 
Uh, yeah, um, Ishan, you're certainly correct. Um, and I just wanted to say that the two children, uh, basically, almost like, and I'm going to say two children because Ukraine and Russia, they're, they're very, very closely related. And they were both, like Ishan said, united under the Rus empire. So I think what really, uh, a really important year in time concerning this issue was in 1654 when the Ukrainian Zoporzian Cossacks located in the eastern part of what is today Ukraine was accepted under the protection of the Orthodox Russian Tsar after a war against a Polish state I forgot the name of it but I know that it was pretty it was long and brutal and drawn out um, and I know that during the next century and a half the Russian Imperial Administration absorbed Ukrainian lands and deprived them of autonomy and cultural specific, specific, specificity and right. the growing empire of, I think, the Romanovs also increased yeah. its Ukrainian territories in the West. And this is all during partitions of Poland in the late 18th century. Um, no, actually, in fact, um, prior to all this uh, Cossack colonization of the area, in fact, um, it got occupied, of course, as uh, Jacob mentioned, by the Mongol Empire, which led to the Golden Horde taking over that area. And then uh, one of after the Golden Horde split into multiple pieces, eventually it was occupied by the Crimean Khanate. So a little bit about the Golden Horde. So it was one of the successor states to the Mongol Empire after it was divided upon the secession of Kublai. And... In fact, this horde didn't stay Mongol for a very long time because as it was so far separated from the Mongol heartland, it eventually adopted more of a Turkic character as it was all the way near Central Asia. Because at this time, this entire region, which now uh, Eastern Ukraine, Southern Russia, was more part of the greater Turkic Mongol world. And the Crimean Khanate was another portion of this larger sphere. And in fact, the eastern areas of Ukraine, which are now in like serious dispute, including Crimea, which is now also disputed between Russia and Ukraine, those are part of the Crimean continent and are actually majority Turkic. So actually, at this point in time, they were neither Russian nor Ukrainian. So, but then an interesting change of events occurred when Russian empire eventually got control of that area. So this is long after the Rus, because eventually the uh, Muscovy was able to repel much of the invaders and actually unite Russia and then slowly become the empire of Russia, which expanded dramatically. And then it attempted to enforce its suzerainty over this region. So- Uh, Yeah. Yeah. To your point, uh, Ishan, um, we know that uh, the Russian Empire was pretty relatively late in entering Europe's age of nationalism, but we do know that when the Polish Rebellion of 1863 kind of alerted Russian authorities to the political implications of, you know, ethnic ethnic identities such as, you know, you have Ukraine and other Eastern European ethnic uh, identities. Uh, so they they reacted also with a crushing blow against the uh, against Ukraine, and you can see that in 1863, 
when Tsar Alexander II banned the publication of religious and educational works in the Ukrainian language and prohibited the publication of any Ukrainian books, which now included literature as well as the use of the Ukrainian on stage. Um, right, and that's a that was a, a crucial moment right there because then they started distinctifying Ukrainian from Russian, and Russian became more of the superior influence there uh, because of the administration. And even before this, um, this area actually, the Cossacks who were more like a frontiersmen, they played a role in enforcing Russian sovereignty over this area. And in fact, this was shown in the Russo-Turkish wars. And um, also in these wars, actually, it pitted the Russian empire against the Ottoman empire. And the reason for this was that over time, the Crimean Khanate became very weak and eventually the Ottomans were able to establish it as a protectorate of its empire. And the Russian expansionist drive southward kind of clashed with that Turkish protectorate. Mm -hmm. But eventually the Russians were able to win and they established the uh, new Russia government also known as Novorossiya in their native language. And this is the first when this name was lent to this region, which makes up the Eastern Ukrainian areas, including Donetsk, Luhansk, and the other areas near the Donbass. So and this is when that name first came. And now Ukrainians and Russians started to settle in this region. Yeah. So actually, this area, which is not captured, this Novorossiya, it began to start being settled by the Russians and Ukrainians who were now moving into this area to replace the Turks. So actually, in the Odessa city, in this region, all the way back in the year of 1851, the num percentage of Ukrainians then known as Little Russians, was 69.14%. Romanians, interestingly, actually made up 7.37%. Jews made up 5.4%, interestingly. Russian Germans, who were Germans who settled in this area, made up 3.9%. It's actually more than Russians themselves, who are known as great Russians. And the rest of the minorities here were like Bulgarians, Belarusians, Greeks, etc. And Tatars, who were the Turkic people who had originally lived here uh, prior to this, in fact, only made up 0.01%. Now, of course, these statistics were different in many other areas. So in fact, in the whole region of the whole, the all Russian empire census in 1897, actually portrays, actually gives data that the mm -hmm. Ukrainian speaking population was around like 50%, Russian population about 20%. And um, in some areas, the Polish population was two and in the Jewish population was ranging from 3.8 to 11.8 in different areas. So, what to take from this is that in a lot of the areas, it was mostly Ukrainian, 
But then as you go east, there seem to be more Russians. And now in that same all Russian empire census in 1897, which is conducted in the more uh, Eastern Donetsk district, which is currently disputed, there are actually 273,000 Russians and 177,000 Russians. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Sevastopol, which is a major city in Crimea, there were 34,000 Russians and only 7,000 Ukrainians. So as we can deduce, there seems to be a mix of people, an ethnic mix. Mm -hmm. However, this means that both they're both Russians and Ukrainian and varying data shows there are more Ukrainians. Other data shows there are more Russians. So it's a very, it seems to be a very mixed area and being a recently conquered area, there seems to be quite a mess going on right there. Mm -hmm. What do you Uh, think about this? Yeah, it's pretty interesting because we know that Russian uh, back when they're back in the Russian empire, we know that Russian czars never really controlled all the lands on which ethnic Ukrainians lived. I mean, um, I think we know that. And uh, we do also know that uh, during the partitions of Poland in the late 18th century, the westernmost region of Ukraine became part of the Habsburg-Austrian Empire. Um, so uh, the, the uh, Habsburg emperors also acquired two smaller Ukrainian populated areas from the Ottomans and the in the yeah. hung, Hungarian region. Uh, it was very small, though. Yeah, um, we also we also can analyze that all Ukrainian lands in the Austrian Empire were basically agrarian, agrarian backwaters with little to no industrial development, and it was basically like a stale cultural life. So the Ukrainian peasantry, I mean, had little influence in the largest of these regions. I mean, you had the crown land of Galicia, and which mm-hmm. was dominated by the Polish nobility. But we do know that the very ethnic mosaic of the Habsburg Empire helped develop a modern identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we also do know that uh, the Austrian Germans, they weren't really able to assimilate those small minorities of Ukrainians in the ethnic uh, patchwork in which the empire they ruled as the Russian government was doing in its own empire. And we can see that with the awkward and unwitting European choice of Western Ukrainians, which had far reaching implications. Right. Um, and it can actually also be commented that the Austro-Hungarian culture was far more different to the Ukrainians than the Russian culture, which to an extent could be seen as a smaller deviation from their own culture. So, for example, it wouldn't be as difficult for a New Zealander to assimilate into Australian culture, although that assimilation probably be much easier than the Ukrainian to Russian, but it's essentially similar to that. So it wouldn't have been too difficult. And in fact, the Ukrainians could technically assimilate, but without actually assimilating, they could just rather acculturate and they could... Yeah still participate in the larger society without changing too much of themselves. However, in Austria-Hungary, it's a different story because the southern German Austrians and then the uh, Finno-Ugric 
Hungarians who had adopted much of a Balkan Central yeah. European culture was just far too foreign to the Ukrainians. So I see that that could be a reason as for why they didn't participate or mix with them as much. Yeah. Um, we And can... in fact, a lot of the population in the border area between Ukraine and Russia yeah. actually was mixed. Yes. Yes. Um Based on what, uh, like Ishan said, you know, it's very, very, it was very, very difficult, you know, with Ukraine, Ukrainians basically assimilating. So the Austrian Empire did something that was pretty remarkable for that time period. I mean, they offered the Ukrainian, the Ukrainians an experience that was basically t- totally absent on the Russian side of the border, which was political participation. So the Ukrainians in the Habsburg Empire could both develop their culture and acquire a taste for parliamentarism, limited as it was, which uh, we can describe as, uh, you know, Ukrainian intellectuals in Austria, you know, developed a clear concept of modern Ukrainian ethnic identity. And they reached out to the peasantry through a network of reading clubs, schools, uh, different organizations. Um, And we also know that the Austrian government assisted in this nation building process in part to create a counterbalance to the Poles and in part because it was gearing up for war with Russia. And we can definitely see that later on, um, which came into the bloody carnage that was World War I. And uh, for example, in the 1890s, the Austrian Ministry of Education helped switch Ukrainian schools to modern orthography a move that highlighted the differences between Ukrainian and Russian, which this really comes into play later on. Um, We also know that the Austrians are also instrumental in making the Ukrainian Catholic Church a national institution. And that is why I say that this is pretty remarkable. You know, even though the Ukrainians couldn't assimilate, the Austrians offered them a separate, you know, they, they even helped them out, you know, a separate, basically allowed them to make their own separate entity. So, Ishan, you can... Uh, yeah. So, in fact, um, in that region, which was called Carpatho, Ukraine, which was actually part of the, uh, of the Habsburg Empire, if I'm not mistaken, of course, uh, that area actually did not become part of Poland or Ukraine or Russia or the Soviet Union after the collapse of the Habsburg Empire. And um, noting actually on the fact that the Ukrainians on this, on the Western side of the border in uh, Austria-Hungary had more rights than they did in the Russian Empire could be attributed to the fact that the Austrian Empire actually did have a unique structure in that it was divided into many different kingdoms for different areas, different titles, actually, with that Ukrainian title, I believe, being part of a separate title than the main titles, which were Austria and Hungary. But if you see with the Russian Empire, it was just Russia, that's it, with a bunch of mm-hmm. provinces. And this, these provinces in Ukraine or and Novorossiya, they're just other provinces, and that's it. And they're but ultimately, the king is the emperor is Russian. The empire is Russian. So yes. everything is Russian. So it's yeah. basically, it was more of that type of approach. And ultimately, the approach of Austria-Hungary didn't 
really serve to save it either because mm-hmm. we can see how it collapsed in World War One. <laughs> and yeah. uh, this whole area, in fact, um, the Carpato-Ukraine area, which is inhabited by Ukrainians, didn't go to the Russian Empire, of course, because they were uh, in a certain uh, revolution, <laughs> I'll just yeah which of course is the communist revolution which created the Soviet Union. Um, But it didn't go to them because of course the condition originally was that Russia did get defeated in World War I. Yes. But then the central powers got defeated anyway by the other allies of Russia. So yeah. But in that peace treaty anyway, Russia didn't get it lost. So this area, Carpato-Ukraine, which is just south of what Poland was at the time, and now it's part of Ukraine, of course, in modern day. It was actually granted to Czechoslovakia, which was the nation that was formed for Czechs yeah. and Slovaks. So Czechs are and Slovaks are, um, I, especially Czechs, I believe Slovaks as well, are, yes, they are, are a West Slavic ethnic group, whereas Ukrainians are not West Slavic, and Slavic being the larger ethno-linguistic group however since they were slavs anyhow and it was just a small area i suppose that they were just granted they're east slavic they were just granted to czechoslovakia yeah and um however hungarian nationalists claimed slovakia to be part of greater hungary having been de jure to an extent part of the kingdom of hungary in the internal structure of the austro-hungarian empire and being culturally influenced by the Hungarians to an extent, they believed that Slovakia, along with Carpatho-Ukraine, which was within Czechoslovakia, part of Slovakia, should be part of Hungary. And in fact, um, Carpatho-Ukraine, which um, at the time was actually an autonomous region of of, uh, Czechoslovakia, ended up kind of... actually ended up breaking away. So what happened is that uh, when Czechoslovakia was, the second Czechoslovak Republic was kind of broken up by Nazi Germany, Mm -hmm. when it annexed Sudetenland and puppeted, and then annexed Czechia itself, and then finally uh, puppeted Slovakia, okay? And then also granted lands to uh, Southern Slovakia, I believe, to Hungary, it actually, what happened to Carpathia Ukraine is the president, Augustin Ivanovich Voloshin, I hope I said that correctly, but the chances of that are meek. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he actually declared it independence, independent, this small Ukrainian area. So for a blip in time, Ukraine kind of existed. And uh, yes. This was declared on the 15th of March, 1939. And then when he asked for Hitler to help, and then Hitler was like, I don't care. Why would I even reply to you? And yeah. after three days, just three days, the kingdom of Hungary, which is kind of funny because it, there was no king. It was just mm-hmm. a regency indefinitely under Mikios Horthy, who was a former admiral who now had no navy because he was landlocked. <laughs> How mm. funny is that? A kingdom without a king ruled by an admiral without a fleet. Exactly. That's, uh, that is just ridiculously ironic. ironic. 
So he just invaded it uh, and was like, I'm taking this. And that's the end of Carpatha, Ukraine. Um, and also to Ishan's point, um, we do know that um, uh, the treatment of Ukrainians in the Soviet Union, I think, began to change. You know, you saw with Soviet uh, Soviet leaders earlier on after the revolution wanting to pre- present their state as, fulfill- as fulfilling the dreams of the oppressed Ukrainians for a flourishing, autonomous political and cultural region. Um, by the early 1930s, we could see that the treatment of Ukrainians in, in the Soviet Union began to change from a promotion of Ukrainian culture and society to its restriction and suppression. And uh, we can see that, uh, that uh, as part of the many ab- abrupt changes in policy during Joseph Stalin's time as uh, leader of the Soviet Union, he instituted an end to the indigenization policies uh, um, unleashed um, earlier on during the century after the Russian Revolution, uh, which uh, after these uh, after this end, uh, it caused the horrifying Ukrainian famine uh, from 1932 to 1933, and he kind of seized the op- opportunity to annex ethnically Ukrainian lands from Poland in 1939 and Romania in 1940 and Czechoslovakia in 1945. So thus, even in an area of domestic subjugation, Soviet expansionism helped bring, helped to bring most Ukrainians into the same state. Yes, and that's actually how that uh, Carpatha Ukraine area I was talking about became part of the USSR. They just annexed it when they uh, steamrolled Eastern Europe in World War II. So actually back to the Novorossiya issue. So it does seem that even in imperial records, the area was very mixed. And it does seem that the uh, area seemed to be in the East, majority Russian, but in the West, majority Ukrainian. So that caused some issues over whether it should be part of Ukraine or part of Russia, with the Russian population believing, of course, that uh, it should be part of Russia. However, eventually, they were absorbed both into the USSR and the, the, the Russian SFSR was already big enough. So they might as well, they just left it in Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, Crimea, which was previously part of the um, Russian SFSR, was gifted to the Ukrainian SSR, actually, which is how Crimea itself became part of Ukraine. So as um, actually touching apart um, on the ethnic makeup of Crimea, it seems that in the 30s, in the early 30s, the bottom portion of Crimea was in some areas majority Turkic. It was actually mm-hmm. taught Crimean Tatar, which was that descended from the Turkish groups that lived there. So especially the southern area of the coastline facing Turkey and the Central Asia. But the northern part became majority Russian. But then over time, Stalin actually adopted a policy of sending the Crimean Tatars back home which he defined as Central Asia because he thought since they had come from uh, 
Central Asia, they should just be sent back, which is, of course, ridiculous logic. Yes. Um, and see, previously, in some areas, they had occupied um, 70%, 63%, 55%, 89%, 55% in different areas. And in those same areas, afterwards, they only occupied 46 down from 70%. 17.4%, 5.9%, 1.3%, 0.5%. So you see entire communities were deported right mm-hmm. there. Of course, that means that not all of them were deported, but a large amount of them were deported to areas such as Kazakhstan. Yes. And it was deemed a Sirgunlik, if I said that correctly, of course. Mm-hmm. Um and it was an ethnic cleansing and cultural genocide of at least 190,000 Crimean Tatars in May of 1944, which is quite terrible. And yeah, uh, to Isan's point, we do know, like, with Stalin deporting the native Crimean Tatars to uh, Central Russia, um, Central Asia, um, we can see that this of course, leaves the Russians in majority. And uh, we can see that creeping assimilation elsewhere in the Republic to Russian norms also meant that Ukrainians' eastern regions could remain could remain primarily Russian in culture, albeit with, you know, a majority Ukrainian population. So we also know that while this ethnic overlap caused, a, like, minor problems, during the Soviet era, it kind of would spell a lot of trouble for independent Ukraine. And tellingly, we can see that mass protests that spelled the end of the Soviet federal uh, state began in the regions annexed relatively late, you know, especially Western Ukraine and the Balkan republics and the power of ethnic identity and the memory of civic unity were strongest there. And uh, in fact, Actually, after this mass deportation, uh, the, the majority population of Crimea became Russian, uh, except actually in almost every area became majority Russian. Of course, it's a considerable Ukrainian and considerable in the north and considerable Turkic minority in the south of Tatars. But overall, Crimea adopted a more Russian character after that, as if it had not already. And although it was um, under the uh, jurisdiction of the Ukrainian SSR, and that was because uh, it was a gift to Ukraine as more of a, uh, during Khrushchev's time, as a more of a kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, it's more of like a show of like mutual existence or something. And this is a 1954 transfer of Crimea, um, which is known as the Crimea Oblast, which is like district, a province, like district. And it was transferred, of course, from the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic to the Ukrainian SSR. But ultimately, it really wasn't anything because mm. If you think about it, it's just its small internal shift within the USSR. And at that time, leaders thought it wasn't really anything other than something good to placate Ukrainians with. But then later, after some 40 years, 
the consequences of that shift would begin to show. And this is now when the more recent history of the conflict begins. So um, I guess Jacob could uh, start on how that shift affected the uh, ties between Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, um, we can see that. I mean, really, like with like uh, what Ishan said, he kind of explained it uh, pretty perfectly. Um, uh, we can describe that after the Soviet collapse, I think in 1991, I think the Ukrainian state, which, you know, had, was independent now, you know, sought to structure, you know, a new political system and to transform the economy from, you know, that vintage Soviet mold, Ukrainians question their future relations with Russia to the East and Europe to the West. So we can see over the past two decades, the Russia-Europe question, I mean, kind of became really increasingly to be framed as either or. I mean, Ukraine would need to choose between closer ties with Russia or with the European Union. So with Russia, you know, ascendant uh, under Putin, maintaining strong ties with both sides is kind of impossible. And I mean, we can see that even observers, I mean, noted a curious political tide in Ukraine where you can see in early elections, democratic nationalists favoring the European choice that is. Actually, those are some good points from Jacob. And actually the a major issue for Crimea now was that during the USSR, while it existed, actually, it was part of a Russian majority nation, which was the USSR. And it was right next to the Russian SFSR. Even if it was jurisdictionally within Ukraine, it really was within the USSR, which is dominated by Russia. So it was perfectly fine the way it was. However, and of course, this gift in 1954 was established in the, or gifted in the premise that they couldn't really realize that something like this would happen just 40 years later. And what happened was that the USSR suddenly collapsed and dissolved. And there was actually no dialogue for adjustment in borders because see borders in the USSR, I would just say is quite, they were quite atrocious actually, because the border between different republics was definitely not very well drawn. I mean, after many, many years of civil war, warfare, internal restructuring, you know, all that domestic unrest, these borders were just ruined. I mean, even now, if you zoom into a map in Central Asia, you have terrible regions where, where there's this region which is judicially part of one country, legally part of one country, but surrounded by territory from another country, but the actual people living there don't ethnically belong to either of the countries instead of third country. Um, those three countries were Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, I believe. But I'm not sure which order they were in, but that was the situation. And it's just terrible. I don't know how those borders ended up, and I do actually know how they ended up that way because of ignorant Russian policymakers who drew the maps with little to no concern because ultimately it was all part of the same country regardless. So, I mean, they were just like, eh, whatever. A few people mm -hmm. here, a few people there, whatever. It's all under the same country. It's not like anything will go wrong. 
And uh, they did the same thing in Armenia and Azerbaijan, where they put in a largely Armenian area, Artarsk, in, in Azerbaijan. Okay, and what that caused is that it caused disputes between Armenia and Azerbaijan and in, in Central Asia as well with those border issues. And, um, but however, they didn't really predict that that would cause anything majorly disruptive because I mean, ultimately they're all under one country. It doesn't matter. People here, people here, a few people there, they can go in between, it doesn't matter. But then the USSR suddenly collapsed and all these borders, which at that point were basically soft borders, suddenly became hard borders. And this affected Crimea because it was a Russian majority, overwhelmingly Russian majority area by 2001. And, um, and it would have been in 1999, 1991 as well. But now this was suddenly part of Ukraine because that border became hard and it was transferred to the Ukrainian SSR in 1954. And now it became part of independent Ukraine. So this made a, this caused an issue with the Russian Crimeans and also Russian nationalists because they believed that this area in Ukraine Crimea and other areas in Ukraine as well, which are majority Russian, should have been given to Russia and that this was not fair. And some argued the same about areas in North Kazakhstan as well, which they have not acted on yet. And this didn't just cause, cause issues here, actually. These terrible borders caused issues in Georgia as well, where you had non-Georgian areas such as Ossetia, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia being put in a majority Georgian Georgia. And that wasn't favorable to them because you see, they were not Georgian and they'd rather be independent in their own countries or actually even be part of Russia, the new Russia, rather than be part of Georgia. Because you see, Russia actually has a structure for minority non-Russian areas, and North Ossetia and Circassia are actually parts of Russia. And those two regions, respectively, are related to South Ossetia and Abkhazia, who opted to actually declare independence from Georgia. And now they're fighting an insurgency, which I don't think is that active right now, but because they've essentially secured the area with the support of Russia. This has caused conflict there. Then with Armenia and Azerbaijan, there have been many wars, just one recently within the last uh, few years, one or two years. And in this war, the Armenian area that was placed into Azerbaijan, which is a Turco-Iranic uh, region, um, which is like they speak a Turkic language, right. have both Turkish and uh, Persian influences. Actually, this area, which the Armenians had occupied, hitherto became part of Azerbaijan de facto because supported by Turkey, they were able to reclaim it mm-hmm. and, and take it from the Armenians. And men, the Armenian population of the area, they had to flee as refugees into uh, the Armenian mainland. And what this has done is that this mistake of putting that Armenian area into Azerbaijan had after many decades manifested itself into change because it caused that area not to become majority Azerbaijani instead of Armenian. So that essentially cleaved a nation 
which is a terrible effect. Um, and then on top of that, casualties. And then if you see in Central Asia, you have these disputes, which causes the regular lives of a lot of the people in that, in the particular center of it to be difficult because they have terrible borders, which are poorly marked and poorly administered, and they're not really able to, to access benefits from the central government because of this. So this wasn't just an issue here in the Russo-Ukrainian border. This was an issue as well in Georgia, in Armenia, Azerbaijan, Central Asia, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, Ishan, I mean, recognizes some very, very valid points. Uh, concerning Crimea um, and uh, the other countries in Central Asia and Eastern Europe, which the Soviet Union had originally controlled. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, let's move on to um, the, the Crimean seizure and uh, yeah. the, the strategic and economic importance of Crimea. Right. So in fact, um, what occurred is that uh, Russian nationalists, as I said, had wanted you, Crimea to become part of Russia and many Crime Russian Crimeans as well may have actually wanted to become part of Russia. So up until this point, uh, Crimea was administered as an autonomous republic uh, within Ukraine, actually. But then what happened is that in 2014, what occurred is that Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine. Now, the way this occurred is that the Russian army without any insignia of Russia, so they were dubbed the little green men as they had not, they didn't have any Russian flags or insignia right. on them to identify them by. They're essentially flagless, just walked in to Crimea and took the parliament building. Then at that point, the government was changed and then in a referendum by referendum they actually proclaimed themselves independent right and uh, they um, proclaimed themselves the independent republic of crimea which was quite a, a change in that area and this is after events in 2014 that ousted ukrainian president viktor yanukovych yeah. And, um, what and that actually destabilized Ukraine, which presented a quite unique opportunity for Russia to take this region. And the Russian armed forces were actually aided, aided by pro-Russian separatists within Crimea themselves. And actually, half of the Ukrainian forces stationed in that region itself ended mm -hmm. up affecting to Russia. They defected yeah. to Russia, including the chief of the Ukrainian Navy in the region. He defected to Russia himself. So mm -hmm. in this very low casualty conflict, what happened is that Crimea became an independent country and then immediately joined Russia after a referendum, exactly. which has yeah. been called, called dubious by many Western observers and whether there was actually freedom and democracy in that referendum, you can't really verify, but it does seem that there was a large pro-Russian sentiment in this area, which is often neglected by Western forces. And uh, after that incident, 
Crimea became a uh, Republic of Russia with a degree of autonomy. Exactly. Um, uh, to uh, Ishan's point, um, if we look at ec economically at the situation, we can kind of see that it's kind of mixed. I mean, trying to create, I mean, I think Moscow, which, I mean, to Moscow's, I mean, they're trying to create a success story. And so far, they've poured more than about $10 billion US dollars in direct subsidies, as well as funding major construction and infrastructure projects, such as highways and railroad bridges that now cross the Kerch Strait to link Crimea directly into Russia. So we can see that uh, after which Ishan kind of described perfectly, you know, Crimea became, you know, independent, then immediately joined Russia. Russia immediately started trying to link up Crimea to Russia just almost immediately right off the bat. So we can also see that on the other hand, small businesses, I mean, they've suffered, particularly with the decline of tourism and which also accounted for about one quarter of Crimea's economy. So it's probably fair to say that the reality of the economic situation today falls short of what many in Crimea expected or hope for um, with Russia's annexation. Right. Um, and that also correlates with the stagnating and declining economy of Russia. But Crimea itself, maybe, I mean, hypothetically speaking, if it was independent, maybe could actually be a prosperous independent country because it does, mm -hmm. in fact, have good Black Sea ports, which are important to international trade. So hypothetically, if it was just an independent country, which depended only on itself and could distribute its own revenue among its own citizens, possibly it could develop pretty well. But um, beyond that, actually revisiting the point about the invasion by Russia. Um, so initially what happened is that Vladimir Putin stated that the men in green were actually not part of the Russian armed forces. He said right. it was just, he said it was just local militia who had seized their weapon from the Ukrainian army. So he basically maintained that these are just local pro-Russian separatists who managed to steal their weapons off the Ukrainian army right. and then uh, do this thing. That's why they didn't have Russian insignia on them because they weren't Russian. But then what actually happened is that, um, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe of NATO, Allied Command Operations General Philip Breedlove said that these green men were actually Russian troops in disguise. Right. And even in March of 2014, the uh, invasion itself, it actually occurred on, uh, the invasion itself actually, an annexation actually occurred on, um, in February and March. So the, it ended in March, of course. So in in uh, in in April, I'm sorry, March, Putin continued to say that there was no pre-planned intervention, and that these magically heavily armed, tightly coordinated groups who took over Crimea's airports and ports at the start of the incursion. He says they were merely spontaneous self-defense groups who may have acquired their Russian-looking right. uniforms from local shops who were selling surplus military uniforms. 
Right. And, and um, but according to the Ukrainian Association of Gun Owners, Ukrainian law does not allow the selling or carrying of firearms rather other than for hunting. So these heavy war uh, weapons uh, were, it's impossible that they could have in such large degrees found their hands in just ordinary separatists without foreign intervention or the army itself arming them because you see, those are not hunting weapons. Right. I mean, you can kind of see, um, aside from uh, Ishan's point, if we go to um, 1975 with the Helsinki Final Act and subsequent documents, uh, which stated that state borders should be inviolable and not changed by force, I mean, we can kind of see that Russia's actions kind of just shredded that principle. Right. And we can see that it really caused unease among Russia's other neighbors. And Ukraine has still pushed that it will get Crimea back. And I mean, kind of analytically, it is difficult to see how Kiev can muster the political, diplomatic, economic, and military leverage needed to do so. So perhaps one possibility would be if Ukraine were to achieve dramatic success in its growing economy, both in absolute terms and relative to the Russian economy to the point where Crimeans calculated that their living standards should be better off as part of Ukraine, but with but using Putin this still option, won't allow that. Exactly. With that. With Putin. Um, yeah, with Putin. And on top of that, even if it was gonna, going to, if, if it did actually have a chance to work, um, it would take a very long time. Um, right. So we know that uh, Ukraine's economy just has a long way to go. But we can see that even if Crimea's return appears implausible in you know, the near future, the United States and Europe kind of continue to support Kiev's position, you know, crime, uh, maintain Crimea-related strengthens on Russia. And they kind of hold to the policy of non-recognition of Crimea's annexation. So Moscow kind of has to pay some price for its use of military force to seize the peninsula. So, I mean, put it out of the G8. Yeah. I mean, it, you can, you can see that, that, yeah, kicking them out of the G8, um, suspending their uh, membership, um, and then you have all those economic sanctions. Uh, we can just, I mean, we can see that Ukraine and what Kiev is trying to do, I mean, it's really, really causing a major rift uh, between world relations, between NATO and Russia, which we can bring back to the Soviet period, you know, Cold War, it's really causing some major problems. Right. And um, actually, then later in April, Putin first admitted that Russian special forces were involved in what happened. And he just said, all he said is that they were just there for protecting the local people so that they could have a free referendum, which I would interpret more as just intimidating them to vote for Russia. Yeah. <laughs> or just kicking out Ukraine, which he did later admit is that the Russian armed forces had blocked the Ukrainian armed forces in Crimea to stop them from intervening and apparently stopping anything. So, um, and then further, the Russian Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoyu, said regarding the statements about 
the use of Russian special forces in Ukrainian events, I can only say one thing. It's hard to search for a black cat in a dark room, especially if it's not there. And Mm -hmm. added cryptically that searching for the cat would be stupid if the cat is intelligent, brave, and polite. Mm -hmm. Which is, uh, okay then. Um, Okay. And uh, then actually in April of the next year, retired Russian Admiral Igor Kasatinov said that the little green men were members of the Russian Spetsnaz Special Forces Units. And according to this information, Russian troop deployment in Crimea included six helicopter landings and three landings of Ilyushin um, with 500 troops, which is a uh, strategic airlift troop. Substantial, yeah. So that is uh, quite ridiculous because... They literally sent in the insignified soldiers to invade this region, uh, prop up a referendum, create a country, then eat that country, and then just do that thing. So that's uh, exactly to Ishan's point. I mean, I mean, you can see the Russian journalists, I mean, kind of less aligned with the Kremlin. I mean, they even use the phrase polite men, you know. Polite yeah, and this is literally the uh, defense. The the uh, Sergei Shoigu is the minister of defense. Yeah, I don't know how that's. Pol- I don't know how that that takeover <laughs> was polite, but oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> intelligent, yes, secretive, yes, but polite. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about that. I mean, that's... Okay, so I think this would be a good point, actually, to discuss more in depth about the Novorossiya issue. So, Jacob, if you could add to that. Yeah, so we can kind of see that, you know, the, the, um, the Russian public movement, you know, Novorossiya, I mean, you can see that, you know, historically, Novorossiya was a large swath of southern and eastern Ukraine, which as Ishan had described, um, became part of Imperial Russia. And we can see that Russian President Vladimir Putin really has spoken about it since Russia's annexation of Crimea. And this kind of helped, this is, he did this in order to help stir, you know, nationalist feelings about the region. And we can see that it was established uh, by Igor Shokov, who is described by the EU as an officer in the Russian military intelligence, um, the GRU. And according to BBC, um, uh, he led a group of pro-Russian fighters into the East Ukrainian city of Slovenks. And that was a large trigger for the large-scale armed uprising against Kiev authorities in the East. And we can also see that uh, uh, Shokov, you know, is based in Moscow now. And really, Novorossiya provides humanitarian aid to the rebel-held regions. And the EU says that the movement helps militia fighting in eastern Ukraine, thereby supporting policies undermining the territorial integrity, sovereignty, and independence of Ukraine. So Novorossiya has kind of said that it has 26,000 active supporters across Russia, and it kind of relies on these volunteers' donations. So... Uh, on the problem of, you know, how did Novorossiya react, 
you know, by being blacklisted by the EU. Um, Shokov's deputy, Igor Ivanov, um, kind of believes that the EU's move is pointless. He kind of said, it is ridiculous to treat our organization which supplies warm clothes, food, medicines, in the same way as you would treat a military unit. unit. Um, and also sanctions cannot work in pro pro practice. We are a civil society movement. We have tens and thousands of members who bring donations to our collection points. Our members are civilians. We organize campaigns among school children and church parishioners. And we can see, he, he goes on to say, can the EU sanction all Russian schools or churches? Obviously, he says that uh, obviously it is a joke. And he told this, of course, to BBC. And he has uh, pushed that he really supports the rebels as well as the civilians. Um, you know, we, nobody really knows if he's actually, he's, uh, this is reflected in his actions. He's just saying that. Um, and you can kind of see that he's, uh, he had said that because Kiev's policies, the population of Novorossiya is left without jobs, salaries or welfare benefits. And, you know, they're like, they're basically abandoned. That's basically what he's trying to say. And yeah, um, that's majorly, you can see the movement has many representatives in several large Russian cities and a network of question points. So its supporters include conservatives, Orthodox Christians, nationalists, and monarchists. And I mean, we can see that Mr. Shokov is pretty much an outspoken critic of corruption in rebel-held areas and says he personally monitors the distribution of Novorossiya aid to make, sure, to make sure it reaches the right people. Now, there's no real data to really bat this, um, but being subject to Western sanctions will be considered a badge of honor by supporters who suspect the West of plotting against Russia. Right. And in fact, there is much of a war aspect in this region as well. So what occurred is that starting from around 2014-ish, while these Crimea events were occurring, what happened is that um, in, uh, in May, during this 2014 Ukrainian revolution, when Ukraine was destabilized and there were lots of protests, the, Rus the very much Russian majority area of Donetsk declared itself the Donetsk People's Republic, which is actually kind of operates itself as a de facto government. It's a de facto independent country, which uh, operates itself in South eastern Donetsk uh, area of Ukraine. Now, actually, it, it hasn't occupied all of the area of Donetsk. So originally, it, along with another area named Luhansk, they both declared the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic with very similar flags. They both look identical to the Russian flag, with the exception that the Donetsk flag has black at the top instead of white, and the Luhansk flag has a lighter blue instead of white. So this, this Donetsk Republic is led by Denis Pushilin, and this Luhansk People's Republic is actually led by uh, currently Leonid Pashinik, pa Pashinik, sorry. And both of these in self-declared independent regions have 
been able to actually combat the Ukrainian forces with the aid, of course, of many volunteer separatists in the region, volunteers from Russia, including even biker gangs, and even allegedly the Russian military itself. And in fact, Ukraine has been able to reclaim much of the area, yet the most, the very much mostly Russian majority areas have managed to stave off the Ukrainian advance. And the flags, iconography, and ideologies of these areas, even the names themselves, harken back to the Soviet era, era and also the Russian imperial era. Both were the times and states under which both uh, Ukraine, including Novorossiya, and Russia were united together, which kind of declares their purpose in that they want to be united with Russia again. So they actually decided that since they are fighting for the same goals against the same enemy, they in 2014 actually united into one country, the, the federal state of Novorossiya, which was a confederation of Luhansk and Donetsk. And they claimed all the way up the territory all the way until Moldova, which is quite an ambitious claim. And they declared their state religion to be Russian Orthodoxism, their official language is Russian and Ukrainian. And the dual leaders being Denis Pushilin and Leonid Pasechnik. So quite interesting. Yes. And their uh, speaker of the parliament would be Oleg Anatolyevich Zaryov, who, yeah. who now, of course, doesn't really have much of a position because this confederation actually split itself again along the lines it previously had been, although those two states, those two de facto states, Donetsk and Luhansk, are still allied to each other and still fighting. And it seems that they have a lot of public support, not just foreign support, which is why these regions, among other regions, have actually been able to rebel successfully. But it now seems that Russia is taking a more active position in this issue, which moves us to the current developments. So what do you have to reflect on the current developments, Jacob? So I think the current developments, you know, you can see now in the year uh, 2021, um, you can really see Russian build up of troops, you know, on the Ukrainian border. Um, and really, Putin has really said, you know, we really, really, really do not want Ukraine becoming part of NATO. And that's really a fundamental issue. And what I talked about earlier with Ukraine basically looking at Europe, all of, you know, the EU and everything, and then looking at Russia as like an either or situation, you know, maybe mm-hmm. we should go with Europe, maybe we should go with Russia, you know, but now, you know, you can see with the Crimean Caesar, Kiev is like, you know, maybe we should move towards the EU and NATO. They're looking like a more favorable option right now, you know, because, you know, you can see Russian Caesar Crimea did not really help the situation a lot. And to be honest, it went, if, if Ukraine becomes part of NATO, which Putin really does not want to happen, it would apply 
10 times more pressure on to, I mean, on, onto uh, the Russian Federation, which we can see with his aggressive movement of all these troops onto the Ukrainian border. And you can see how uh, the former German Chancellor, uh, Angela Merkel, you know, called Putin and was like, you know, could you please, you know, move these troops, you know, out, you know, just, just, you know, because we've, we, we had already put sanctions on Russia because of Crimea. And you could see with the Obama administration and the U.S. putting all those sanctions on Russia for uh, their seizure of Crimea. Um, they're, you know, and then with them basically saying, you know, we're going to have Crimea's independent. And then two seconds later, okay, they're part of Russia now. Um, you know, it's quite ironic and, you know, pretty interesting. And you can also see that now during the Biden administration, as Biden is focusing more on the Pacific, Putin is kind of taking advantage of that, you know, trying to apply a little more pressure, just trying to, you know, push that. And while the U.S. is kind of focused, you know, in the Pacific and the Far East, he can really, you know, cause some ma a major headache for the Biden administration, which, of course, you know, they just had uh, Putin and Biden, you know, they just had a, uh, a, a, a video call, um, which we can see that the Kremlin has said was very, very polite, neat. You know, they, they, some, they were, they spoke about their sides of their, of the issue, which of course, nobody knows the exact content of the meeting, but we can suspect that it went down relatively calmly. Um, and then you can see uh, how the United States and the West have kind of taken a really you know, antagonistic view on Russia's current uh, troop buildup. Um, and again, you can see with Biden putting more emphasis on the Pacific, uh, Putin met with uh, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh, just recently to talk about how uh, together they would fight against Western aggression uh, in, in, in whatever regions of the world were concerning them, you know, citing past relationships, you know, and we could go into the Sino-Russian uh, relations for hours, but uh, uh, yeah, current developments in that region are very, very tense. Um, I'm just going to at that. Because originally this conflict was fought mainly between the separatists, the pro-Russian separatists, and then also mm, slightly there has been a role by the armed forces of Russia in arming them and even possibly direct combat against the Ukrainian armed forces. And on the Ukrainian side, actually, you have the official Ukrainian army, but then you also have a bunch of other strange characters, including um, you have the Azov Battalion, which is a neo-Nazi Ukrainian National Guard unit who actually retook the city of Mariupol. So you have a very strange neo-Nazi group within the special forces. You also have uh, you also have a volunteer corps of Georgians fighting for the Ukrainians. You have Chechens, 
who are the, called under the name the Jokhar Dudayev Battalion. You have the right mm. sector, which is a very is a far right paramilitary fighting for Ukraine. You also have the Doman Chelebichihan Battalion, which is a Crimean Tatar, which is the Turkey groups. You, you have this army made of them. So you basically have those certain ethnic armies as well. But then on the side of the separatists, you have, of course, the separatists. Um, then you have all sorts of, and actually their army is quite uh, autonomous in that you have certain units which just randomly came in and, and joined the battle, including a certain Sparta battalion, which collapsed in 2016 after the assassination of its leader, nicknamed Motorola. You have a name called Somalia battalion because um, according to its leader, its members are as fearless as Somalis. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you have a religious Russian Orthodox army, which is another strange group of 100 uh, 100 soldiers i guess inspired by some type of orthodox values yeah. i guess they think it's some type of crusade <laughs> i don't know what's going on and then you have you actually i think the most interesting group in this conflict is the chetniks which are formerly called the chetnik detachments of the yugoslav army who actually are veteran Serbs who fought for the Yugoslavs actually in World War II. Yeah. And they actually were not fighting for the communists. They were fighting for the king of Yugoslavia. So they are somehow still an active armed group now fighting for these yeah. Russian separatists. Then you have the Night Wolves who are a biker gang who Putin actually went to one of their meetings you have a Chechen group fighting for the Russians. So you have Chechens against Chechens. You have Cossacks. Then there's Moldovan mercenaries. And then finally, Ossetian and Abkhaz paramilitaries. So the overall strength seems to be Ukraine has fielded 64,000 troops. And, Ukraine, and Russia has fielded a similar number. Um, and uh, according to U.S. and Ukraine estimates, there are somewhere between 9,000 and 12,000 regular Russian soldiers with uh, another 40,000 to 45,000 fighters, apparently. But of course, any statistics from any side in this issue, in this conflict, is extremely debatable because it's very difficult to, to survey an active war zone in this war in Donbass. And it seems now that the conflict is going to get more pronounced because now Russian are the Russian army is taking up potentially offensive positions along the Ukrainian border. And um, Putin has basically given a condition to the West, including the US, that as Jacob mentioned, that if if they won't don't want him to intervene in Ukraine, then the condition they must meet is that everything Ukraine and everything east of it should not become part of NATO which means that NATO would have to effectively scrap its plans for an admitting Georgia and Ukraine, both nations threatened by Russia, into right. the, their organization. And also, 
they want essentially for Poland and the Baltic states to not be able to field troops in any way that is uh, quote-unquote threatening to Russia. So he's essentially trying to make it so that those nations have to demilitarize the border, but Russians don't have to, and that Ukraine and Georgia shouldn't be admitted into NATO or anything, in turn for Russia not invading, which I don't know. What do you think you would do if you're in that situation? If you're in, for example, like Biden's situation or the Ukrainian president's situation, what would you do? Yeah, I mean, it's really putting an emphasis um, on our viewers, you know, how they can interpret this argument. I mean, like Ishan said, really, what would you do if they, if you were in their shoes, you know, looking at the historical past between Ukraine and Russia, once united, now divided. I mean, you can really, really see that here. You know, it's a very, very complicated situation, very controversial. Um, and really, I mean, uh, I really want to stress the importance of really, really having, uh, you know, an, an increased, I mean, to put it this way, almost as if you could see, you know, what, you know, different people in Ukraine are seeing, you know, seeing what, seeing Putin's agenda, seeing the West's agenda, EU, just look back and as uh, uh, what we're trying to stress and talk diplomacy, looking at history and seeing how it affects current events and the future. Right. And I think personally, if I was in the situation of Biden, what I would do is uh, I would maybe agree because I mean, what Putin's doing is illegal, so I could just leave it, and then he would be condemned by the UN. But pragmatically looking at it, you're not, you can't stop Russia. So, but at the same time, I believe that if Russia actually honored an agreement to not intervene in Ukraine or Georgia, and at the same time, the condition for NATO was that it should not also intervene in Ukraine or Georgia, I don't think there's a problem because then Ukraine and Georgia can continue their democracies and they can economically and diplomatically have ties to the West, but they don't need to join our military alliance if needed, because ultimately the point of NATO is to protect those countries from Russian aggression. And if Russia promises not to be aggressive against them, then the whole point of having them in NATO is just, there's no point. So I see strategically, it's better to just agree to it but at the same time, that would look as if he's conceding to Russia. So he has a lot of trust in that aspect. Um, the Ukrainian president would also have a lot of stress because he could choose to trade in actually those territories and allow them to be free, but then keep Ukraine, the core Ukrainian territories. And then after that, Russia would have no excuse to be further aggressive against Ukraine. But at the same time, that would be an embarrassment because he's just selling off part of his land for nothing. Exactly. So any people on the non-Russian side do have stress because they're kind of having to figure out if they want a strategic victory or they want a moral victory. Because if they pursue one path, then they will win strategically, but they will lose, they will lose morally because 
if you think about it, they're going to be they're going to be seen as people who are conceding to the enemy. But then, if you look on the other hand, they can choose to tough it out and not concede, but they're going to suffer. They might still suffer a strategic loss. So it really depends on whether they want to think more pragmatically or morally, because or like you know psychologically, because like if you think about it, the media. Plays a large factor because it's how they portray politicians that often influences their decision. So it does depend on that as well. But then, if you look at the Russian side, on one hand, he might actually absorb those territories into Russia and free those Russians, which will be a great uplifting of the Russian spirits in this era where they're declining. But then, at the same time, he could actually not do that. And instead, get a strategic victory. So he has to choose between a strategic victory or a moral victory. But in both situations, he's not really losing much. Whereas the West yeah. does have to lose from either decision they have. So it's a complex issue, and it's still in its early phases. As the Russian troops have not really proceeded to attack as a result of terrible weather, because currently it's boggy season in Ukraine and ultimately soldiers would have difficulty stepping on the muddy ground. So we'll have to wait for a few months to see how this issue develops. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I think, to be honest, um, the current developments in Ukraine, I mean, they kind of serve as a real, I mean, if you can look at any historical situation where you can see two sides disputing over similarly the exact same thing, Ukraine is a very, very, very great, great example of this. Um, and uh, yeah. Thank you all for listening. Hope you learned something you about the, uh, yeah, the Ukrainian issue in modern times and also stretching back to ancient times and uh, i hope that you're also eagerly waiting for further developments in the issue please remember to check out our website at talkdiplomacy.com and also our instagram page at talk diplomacy and please make sure to tune in to the next episode of our podcast thank you thank you